so good to be back in the house of the Lord with you this morning. It's always a joy to come to the Lord's house and to worship together with like-minded believers. And I trust that we've done that this morning and uh, the songs that we've sing and the songs that were selected. Um, our praise to the Lord should never be undervalued. Uh, we come together to sing praise to Him because it has been commanded of us. We're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it's very important to each of us to be fully engaged in that because worship is not a spectator event. It's not something that we come to watch, but rather it's something we come to do. We come to offer the sacrifice of our lips to our Lord, and I always enjoy that part of the service because it allows everyone to contribute to adoring the great God that we serve who is truly worthy of our worship. This morning, let's take our testaments and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. So last Sunday, when we gathered together, we talked about a ministry that moves the world. And we looked in the book of Acts chapter 17 when the Apostle Paul came in uh, to the uh, city there of Thessalonica. And we talked about how Thessalonica was kind of the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, how it was established by King Cassiander in uh, the 300s B.C., how it was a port city, and it was kind of a growing metropolis that was full of people. And, you know, it was a very pagan city. It was full of all types of sin and unrighteousness. And Paul comes in uh, to this city that was some 900 miles away from his central place of abode, the city of Jerusalem, the place that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And he was very active there in the, in the sect of the Pharisees. And so he travels some 900 miles away. And we ask the question, why was Paul 900 miles away from his central place of residence uh, there in this foreign environment? And we talked about how Paul was motivated by a, an event that took place in his life where God met him on the road to Damascus and radically changed who he was. And we talked about how that should be true of each and every one of us. Not all of us have this Damascus road experience where the, the heavens shine bright with a bright light, but there should be a moment in every one of our lives where we were not the same as we were before where something miraculously takes place in our lives and we can see a change. Even if we grew up in church, there should be that moment where we see our sins on our Savior, on the cross that should have been ours, bearing our sin and our shame and delivering us from sin. And that moment should change us and should give us a motive to fulfilling the calling that God has called us to in this life because God has given every one of us a mission and he's given every one of us a grand and a glorious message so God gave Paul the mission to go out 
and to proclaim the glorious gospel. And now Paul has a revolutionary message to those that have been chosen in Christ, that Christ has come and he has died. And, he, and we talk about how Paul preached the necessity of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he enters into, into uh, Thessalonica and he tells the Thessalonians, this is why it's necessary that Christ had to die. And no doubt he's preaching the total depravity of man, that we are sinners by nature, that we come forth from our mother's womb speaking lies, and how we have offended a just and a holy God, and we deserve an eternal uh, tenure of torment isolated from the great God of heaven. And he talks about, no doubt, the covenant of grace that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that we have been placed in Christ so that Christ came not to bear the sin in general, but to pay for our sins specifically. And by bearing our sin specifically, we have been saved from wrath through him. And he talks about the necessity of the resurrection, how that it was necessary that Christ would rise again so that we may be justified, so that we may see that our sins were in fact paid in full and that Christ, that God accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And we saw uh, Paul's method. We closed out last time when, with Paul's method of how he entered into that city and delivered the message that God had given him, how that he went to those that had evidence that they had had a work of grace in their life. And we see this consistently throughout his ministry. He is going to the Jews in their synagogues. And when he, when he meets the pagans, he's going to their pagan temples because uh, they have a desire to worship on many of them. Uh, and that desire, they, just, they, have, they don't have the, the complete information that shows who the true God is, why we should worship him. So he is increasing his probability of gaining current converts by going to those who are religious in nature, but don't have all the information that they need. And we talked about how he reasoned, and he opened, and he alleged, and he expounded the word of God. And he placed truth alongst truth, and he rightly divided the word of God. So now, we come to the book of Thessalonians. And Paul has written this uh, not long after he has left the city. So, he enters into the city, he preaches the gospel faithfully and boldly. He's there a very short time, but he does a lot of work while he's there. He's busy uh, doing what God has called him to do, but because um, there is persecution, because there are those of the Jews that hate Christ and hate the message of the gospel, they begin persecuting him and the Christians that he is associated with, the new converts that he gains. And so, Paul is forced to flee to the next town of Berea. And there they accept the word of God. But it's not long before the Jews of Thessalonica hear that he's gone to, to Berea. And so they go there and they do nothing but stir up trouble again. And so he's forced to flee again. And so now Paul is further along on his missionary journey, his mission of preaching the gospel abroad, the, the, the thing that God has called him to do, but he has in his heart 
to write back to the church at Thessalonica to further their discipleship. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, true discipleship and what that looks like and how Paul is, is trying to cultivate that in the lives of those at Thessalonica. And so we read in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to notice, first Paul identifies uh, who he's with, the ministerial brethren that he's laboring with, Paul, Silvanius, and this young preacher at this time by the name of Timothy or Timotheus, and they're writing to the church of God, uh, the church of the Thessalonians, the church that is there in Thessalonica, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul refer, uh, commonly refers to these churches as being in God, not simply of God. Uh, it's not just a product of God and God's grace in this area. You know, that's how you would phrase that if you're talking about the, the grace that is being poured out and that this is a product of God's grace. You would say that this is the church of God in Thessalonica. But that's not how Paul writes this. He says that this is the church of God, that is the church that is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important that we understand that in and what Paul is, is indicating by using that instead of of? Of talks about where it came from, but in is expressly covenantal language. What I mean by that is when we are in something, it means that we have been placed, we have been placed in it. You know, you're in church today. You are here. You are placed in it. Uh, when you go to Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 4, it says, According as he hath chosen us in him. We have been placed in Christ and in God. We're not there by nature. We're not in God by nature. We're not in Christ by nature. We have been moved into God and in Christ by a sovereign act of God. God has chosen us to be in Him. God has chosen us to be in Christ. He has lovingly and graciously placed us within Him by an act of a promise. He made a unique and unilateral promise unto us to place us within himself. And you know that if we are in God and if we are in Christ, that nothing can take us out of Christ or out of God. Jesus spoke expressly when he said, uh, they are in my Father's hand and nothing can take them out of my Father's hand. I'm paraphrasing that, but that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying nothing can take those that God has rescued and placed in his care, in himself, 
None can take that away. So Paul is reminding them of the covenant of grace right off the bat in the very first few lines of his salutation here. So he says that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the next thing he does is he pronounces a blessing upon the church. In his very first lines, he's, he's wishing them that they would be filled with the unmerited favor of God and that that unmerited favor would result in a tranquility of soul that passes any natural understanding. Paul would pray in another passage that we would be filled with the peace which passes understanding. When God gives us peace, it's not as the world gives us peace. There are so many things in this life that can trouble us, that can set our mind to worry, to uneasiness, to, to conflict. Have you ever had something that has happened in your life that has just caused you to just feel agitated all the time? You're just in a state of constant agitation. It just seems like there's just this, this roughness within your soul and you can't explain it. And maybe you don't even know where it came from, but it's just there and you're just agitated. And of course, when you're in that state, everybody that does anything to you just sets you off. And, and my family knows really well when I'm like that way. When I get in a state of just agitation, and there's something bothering me. Everybody knows it because I'm not fun to be around. And of course, everybody's that way. But when God gives us peace, when he touches us with a tranquility of soul, no matter what happens in the world around us or to us, there's this lightness and freeness and calmness within us that we can take everything that life throws at us in graceful strides. I don't know about you, but with the way that the world is around me, I need a peace of soul in order to survive. I don't like feeling agitated. I don't like feeling conflict. I don't like feeling like I don't know what I need to do next. I don't like that feeling. And Paul knows that nobody likes that feeling, and for the children of God, what we need is supreme peace. And, and just not to spoil the grand event here, but this is a persecuted church. They've got troubles like you and I don't have troubles, okay? My truck may break down and that may cause some agitation in, in my soul. Somebody may say something dirty to me. 
My wife may be unkind to me. You know, those are minuscule problems, really. These Christians were having to worry about the Jews coming into their homes and arresting them, dragging them to Jerusalem to be murdered. Could you imagine living every day wondering when somebody's going to break into your home and drag you and your children out and kill you and your children, those that you love, and there's nothing you can do about it? And so Paul is praying that they would have that peace that passeth understanding. And notice he says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. He's reminding the Christians that, listen, first off, you're not in it alone, and we serve a, a, a mutual being. God is not just my God, and he's not just your God. He's our God, and we worship him together, and we serve him together, and he blesses us all together. And then in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul here expresses an attitude of gratitude. Paul is showing that he was thankful for the vibrant and resilient faith of the disciples of Thessalonica and their testimony. Paul's a good pastor, if you'll allow me to use that term. Paul was at this point not necessarily the pastor of the church of Thessalonica. But he does fulfill a pastoral role as far as his care, his hopes of the people that made up this church. He is showing you what a, a, a pastoral attitude should be. So Paul is thankful for their, their, their testimony, that they are growing in grace in the knowledge of the Lord, that they are standing firm on their committedness to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the face of opposition. In spite of the world being against them, they are standing there and saying, no, we believe in Jesus and we refuse to deny him. We will continue to love and serve. And Paul is saying, I'm thankful for that attitude. I'm thankful for your confession of faith. I am thankful for your boldness. A pastor is never more encouraged when he sees his flock not just listening to the Word of God, but when he sees the Word of God actively changing their lives to where they are glorifying God with every fiber of their being. You know, I enjoy having people come up to me and saying, Brother John, I really enjoyed that message. Or when they come to me and they say, you know what, God really spoke to me in this message and here's how he spoke to me in that message. You know, that's encouraging 
for a minister of the gospel to hear. To know that God is using him in the pulpit to uh, teach, to encourage, uh, to bolster the faith of those under the sound of his voice. I, I need to hear that from time to time. But nothing encourages me more when I, than when I see my flock growing. When I see them developing and when I see them joyful to serve the Lord, when I see them growing in their understanding of doctrine, when they can begin to talk about the truths of God, not simply, uh, not simply rehash things, but they're actually asking questions and, and they understand things and they're putting the pieces together. That's encouraging to me. And so Paul is encouraged and thankful for these, for these disciples instead of being grieved for them. Because you're, you're either encouraging your pastor or you're discouraging your pastor. There is no middle ground, really. You know, I don't think people realize that. You're, that, that you're either encouraging or you're discouraging. Listen to... to uh, to Paul's words again in the book of Hebrews. In verse 17 of chapter 13, he says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. So they're going to answer to God for your spiritual condition. That they may do it with joy. That they may do it with joy, happiness, and cheerfulness. That when God calls on them to give an account for, their, for your spiritual condition, they can come to God and say, Hey God, this, this disciple right here, man, he's growing. He's encouraging. He's reading his Bible. He's studying the Word of God. Uh, he, I can tell that his prayers are deep. I can tell that he's working hard in his marriage. That he's working hard uh, to disciple his children. Uh, that he's that he's really striving to love his neighbor. I can tell that, that he's growing in grace and the knowledge of you. That he may do it with joy. Listen, and not with grief. See, Paul only gives two sides. You're either causing joy or you're causing them sorrow. Instead of a pastor falling on his knees and saying, Lord God, I just don't know. You know, I preach and I pray and I, I try to minister. And no matter what I do, there's just no interest. There's no growth. There's nothing going on in a positive light in, in, uh, that I can see on the outside. You know, and not all fruit is visible, and I understand that. But, but Lord, what's going on here? How, how, can, how, is it, how am I going wrong? How am I doing things wrong? He says, and not with grief for this for that is unprofitable for you. When a pastor is discouraged and overwhelmed with the spiritual condition because there's no growth, it really hampers everything he does. Everything he does. And that's true of all pastors. This is not just true of me. This is a spiritual truth that is that's true across the board. And I can tell you over the past two years from all the things that we have endured from the political, from the political polarity that is that has come up in churches where people are just 
They're, they're so polarized by politics and people's response to this virus. You have churches that are filled with discouraged pastors. I am close to more than a dozen pastors, very close to more than a dozen pastors. And I can tell you across the board, they're discouraged and they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And they see their flock is scattering abroad and, and, and it's not profitable for those congregations. But Paul here doesn't have that attitude. Paul is grateful because he's seeing them moving in, in the direction of true discipleship. And because of that, he's saying, making mention of you in my prayers. You know, a pastor loves to pray for his congregation. It's at the heart of his ministry. You think all I do on Sunday morning is get up here and preach. No, the majority of my, of my ministry to you as a congregation doesn't take place in the pulpit. It takes place in my prayer closet. When I'm on my knees, when I'm on my way to work, and I'm praying your names over my steering wheel, and I'm praying that God would, would grow you and that you would uh, develop a hunger for his righteousness and that you would be men and women of mercy and, 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 that, and that you would come to, to fully understand the doctrine so that you can go and tell others the truth that you found. Paul is praying. And, and you know, I, we're not going to take the time to examine these today. But I want you to, to go and I want you to examine the content of Paul's prayers. Go through Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and these, these epistles that Paul has written and take special notice of the prayers that he's praying for these people. It's not for physical things. You know, and if, if you're sick, man, I want to know it. I want to pray for you. But notice that the pastoral prayers he play, prays all revolves and centrals around their spiritual condition. You know, Paul would say in one place that you would uh, know the power that has brought you to, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would come to know the length and the depth and the breadth and the height and the, and, and the entirety of the love of God. These are spiritual prayers for the spiritual condition of the saints. And then in verse 3, and this is where I really wanted to get to the meat of the message this morning on true discipleship. He says, remembering. Paul is bringing this to his mind. This is something that is in here that he remembers over and over and over again. And when this happens with the disciples of any church, this is something that will be memorial in the mind and the heart of the pastoral leadership. He says, remembering without ceasing. I remember without a break in my mind, this is something that is constantly on my mind. Remembering your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Paul says, as I'm out and I'm preaching the gospel, 
Do you know what's prodding me on? Do you know what's pushing me to continue the mission and getting me through all the trials uh, that I face in this life? It is keeping in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. That makes it worth it. Could you imagine if a preacher or a pastor had to spend all of his ministry and saw no results? I can tell you what would happen. That man would quit. How would you like to go to work and see nothing come out of your labor? The man, you would quit. Eventually, you'd say, this is useless. I keep doing the same thing, and I'm getting, I'm getting no results from what I'm doing. I'm just going to quit. But Paul saw an effect for his ministry. And because of that, Paul was encouraged, and it would bolster his his determination to go out and preach the word of God more ferociously than he has ever preached it in the past. He sees there's an effect. He sees the glory of God is is being manifest in these saints. And he's saying, the glory of God is worth it. And if my ministry is bringing glory to God through the effect, then I will preach without ceasing. Look at these. I call this, the trinity of true discipleship. This is, these are the three key things that should be in the life of every single believer in Jesus Christ. He says, I remember without ceasing your work of faith. And what I want to make the point here is that faith, our confidence and our belief in God is never an inoperative or inactive state of being. It's not simply a disposition towards God. True and abiding faith does not stand still. It does not do nothing. But faith does something. It is active. It moves. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, to the disciples in verse 28, He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. That is an enduring, continual promise. If you're striving and you're working for your salvation, trying to be good enough to please God in order to escape the eternal punishment of hell, if you just come to Christ and rest on Him for His sacrifice, God will give you rest in your your soul. But then notice in verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. God does not simply expect you to come to Him and trust Him for your salvation and then do nothing. God expects you to come to Him, trust in Him for your salvation, and then place His yoke upon your neck and begin to work in that confidence. James would tell us in James chapter 2. Concerning our faith and our works. He says in verse 14, What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And notice that he's not talking here about eternal salvation. He's not asking the question, can your faith alone deliver you from the torments of hell? We are delivered from the torments of hell by the salvation of Christ alone, by His work on the cross alone. But listen, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not, those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? What he's saying here is, does your faith in God actually fix the situation, save someone from the situation? And the answer is no. And he says, even so, faith, if it had not works, is dead, being yet alone. It means, and dead here means inoperative. It's inoperative. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will shew thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? A mark of true discipleship. True belief and, and following of the Lord will result in a man that is motivated by faith. Just as the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, last time we looked at his motivation, he saw God on the, on the road to Damascus. He saw his sins upon his Savior. And seeing that motivated him to fulfill his God-given mission. So our faith in God should motivate us to love others around us. And that brings us to the next one. That's why this is called a trinity of true discipleship because they are all hinged together. Your work of faith and your labor of love. Our labor of love. And that word labor there means a wearisome, tiresome labor. This is where you are expending a true amount of energy. Let me put it to you this way. This is not something that costs you nothing. You know, we can do something that costs us nothing. Make ourselves feel good for a moment. But true love, true love is always going to come with a price. 
For an example of this, I point you to the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Greater, man, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God has shown his love for us, and it cost him everything. To show your love and your relationship, love and relationships are going to cost you time. It's going to require you not to be selfish with your time, but to give your time to your partner. It's going to require you uh, to give wholly of yourself. True love that is wearisome and tiresome is going to cost you something. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, Circumcision availeth nothing but faith which worketh by love. The deeds of the law will do nothing for us. What does something for us in your spiritual life, and let, let me make this point, if your spiritual life is dry and dull, and you don't feel God in your life, this is the answer. It is faith that worketh by love. Because working to make yourself good enough is not going to work. But simply trusting God and loving God and loving those around you. I have never felt more close to the Lord than whenever I have exhausted myself serving his people. Doing good to those around me. Spending my time in prayer for others. If you don't believe me, just spend 20 minutes praying for everybody you know. Don't even pray for yourself. Just get down on your knees somewhere by yourself and begin praying for others. It's going to cost you time. But when you get up, you'll feel much closer to God than you've ever felt in your life. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and in verse he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. If I don't have love, even though I have faith that could move mountains, it does no good. So he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. That patience of hope means a cheerful endurance to endure trials and troubles around you, especially persecution for your faith, to be happy in the midst of that cheerful endurance 
that looks forward and in anticipation. You know what anticipation is? It's when you get excited about something that's coming. You know, whenever you get ready to go on vacation and you're counting down the days, getting ready to go and do something that you really want to do, that's anticipation. That's anticipation. And so patience of hope is a cheerful endurance of all the ugliness right now, looking for the moment that Christ returns and makes all things better. Or even a cheerful endurance of the things that are happening now, knowing that God is full of grace, gr uh, grace and truth and will deliver you in this life. It is waiting for the moment that He delivers you. So the trinity of true discipleship is the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. And these disciples at Thessalonica were exhibiting these, these character traits of true discipleship. And because of this, Paul was grateful for their testimony. And he was encouraged by them. He made mention of them in their prayers. And then he says in verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I want to make two points here. The first point I want to make is that Paul uses the term election in a way that they should know what this term is. So he's writing to a group of believers, and notice that these believers, there were only a, a, a small portion of the community that were Jews to begin with, and only a small portion of the Jews believed, but it says of the Greeks, not a few. So there was a multitude of Greeks here. This was primarily a Gentile congregation. There were only a handful of, of Jews in this congregation, but there was a multitude of Greeks and noble women. So women that came from nobility. And he speaks to them as if they should know what election is. You know what that tells me? That tells me that when Paul came to Thessalonica, he was preaching the doctrine of election, even though he was there only a few days. You know, there are those in Christianity today that if you tell them, I believe in the doctrine of election, they'll tell you, oh, that's, that's doctrine for mature disciples. That's not doctrine for babes in Christ. But that could be no further from the truth. The fact that Paul preached this to a group of people that had, that had no idea who Jesus was and preached to them the doctrine of election within his very short tenure there tells me that the doctrine of election is meant to be for babes in Christ. And yet we've tried to make it into this doctrine that is 
that is for the spiritual elite, and there is no such thing, by the way, but we tried to make that concept for that. Second of all, he says, knowing your election. In other words, by their vibrant faith, they had manifested that they were the elect. We can make our election sure, not just to us, but also to other believers. Second Peter chapter 1 and in verse 10, he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. This is something that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be diligent about. That means we're to give a full-hearted effort to do. Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. What he's not saying there is that you need to make it certain. In other words, he's not saying that by our actions, we can somehow secure ourselves as the elect of God. No, the elect, election is totally 100% in God's choice before the world began. We don't do anything to become the elect, okay? You don't do anything to become the elect. God chose you before the world began. What Paul is saying, or Peter is saying in 2 Peter chapter 1, is that there are things that we can do to make it certain to ourselves and to others. And Paul exemplifies this. He gives an example of this because he is saying, I know your election by the things that you do. And you can come to know that you are an elect by your faith in the gospel. Because only the elect can truly believe. Because faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, which is in, in uh, Second Peter is referred to as our calling. That calling there is not the gospel calling, but rather it is the immediate calling of the Holy Spirit when he calls us from death and sin to life in Christ. And we can know that we've been called by grace from death and sin to life in Christ by having a faith that is active and vibrant because only those that have been born again can believe because faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Only those that have the Spirit of God residing in their hearts can believe. So we know our election by our faith and by our work of faith by our labor of love, by our patience of hope. And then he gives an example of how all this came about. He says in verse 5, For our gospel came not unto you in word only. In other words, I didn't just stand up here and preach, and you heard it, and nothing happened. He says, For our, our gospel came not in word only, but in power. People's lives were changed. People were converted to the truth. The whole course of their life, their whole attitude, their whole, the whole substance of who they were was changed. And in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. 
it was demonstrated, the gospel came, and their election was demonstrated by the effect of the gospel. The effect that the gospel had was it was demonstrated in the power of God and in the Spirit's work in the lives of God's people. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in verse 4, he says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, you would come to believe, not because I'm, I, I persuaded you because I'm so smart, but because God himself was motivating you to believe. Howbeit we speak the wisdom among you, uh, howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Notice that. He says, We're not speaking wisdom among them that are need to become perfect, but among them that are perfect. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the prince of this world that come to naught. For we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. In other words, we speak the wisdom of God that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It came with much assurance. And what is assurance? And this is a doctrine this is a doctrine that is much abused today because the gospel ministry, the point of the gospel ministry is not to make children of God but to assure the children of God. Assurance is the peace one experiences when they see that they have been saved. When they see that God has chosen them, when they see that God has paid for their sins on the cross, they have a peace in their heart that God will save them in the end. That's assurance. And we need assurance. You know, someone would say, am I really saved? When someone asks that question, they are struggling with assurance. And they need to be assured. If you want a little homework assignment, go home and study the word sure in Scripture. But in 1 John chapter 3, the disciple John there is speaking of assurance when he says, in 1 John 3 and in verse 18, he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. How do we know we're a child of God? By our faith that moves us to love, and that gives us assurance that we are a child of God. He says, for if our hearts condemn us, if our hearts condemn us, in other words, if our heart tells us you're not a child of God, you're not really slaved, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our hearts condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. If we have assurance, then we have confidence in God, and we have confidence in the way that we're going. 
and in our discipleship. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have another verse of assurance. He says in verse 19, he says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, in other words, into the presence of God, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated through us, for us through his veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying there, let us draw near into the presence of God, not doubting our salvation, but trusting in the Lord through our faith, that he has saved us. Let's move on and we'll close. We're running out of time. Verse 6, it says, And you became followers of us. Notice that. Paul was a disciple first. And Paul was going out preaching the good news of Jesus and he was making disciples. And Paul would say, Follow me as I follow Christ and of the Lord. He says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. He says, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. These, these men, these women that had believed in this difficult circumstance of persecution were examples of what true faith and true discipleship looks like in a cruel and sinful world. And this speaks to us. We should be the example of what true and faithful discipleship looks like in a cruel and sinful world. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. And the tr truth of the matter is, it is. It is. But we should strive, and by the way, the world's full of hypocrites too, but I don't see anybody exiting that, do you? <laughs> no, just a side point. Uh, but anyway, um, but we should strive to be the picture of what a true disciple of Christ should look like. He says, for from you... Sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. You know what Paul's telling them here? He's saying, and this is a beautiful testimony. This is probably one of the greatest testimonies in the, in the New Testament of discipleship. Paul is saying, when I go to a new town to preach the gospel, and I begin to preach there, there are those that come to me and tell me, hey, I heard what happened down in Thessalonica. I heard what the believers are doing down there. Man, what a, what a testimony of grace. I couldn't imagine going to a church, you know, some 500 miles away and getting there and entering into the church and someone coming up to me and saying, hey, I've been hearing what, what the disciples down in Albany has been doing. That's amazing. That's what, exactly what happened here. Their faith is being spoken of 
all around the world so that when Paul goes somewhere new, they already have a testimony. Paul's not having to relate the story. It's being spread abroad because they've had a true and a vibrant faith. What a testimony this is. Verse 9, he says, For they themselves shew us, shew of us what manner of entering in we had among you and how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the true and the living God. He's speaking here of the Greeks. He so, says, so when we get to a new place, they're telling him, man, I can't believe what happened down in Thessalonica. They literally repented of following that old goddess Diana and began to believe in the true and the living God. That's amazing. They had already heard about it. We should strive to be a a group of disciples that has a faith that gets out. There is no such thing as secret faith. It should never be a secret. The work and the power of God, because our lives are just that. Do you realize that? Our lives are a, an example of the work and the power of God. So everything we do reflects the power and the work of God. So if our lives are not full and vibrant, it speaks very poorly of the power and the work of God. We should strive not to be talked about. We shouldn't do things in order to gain a reputation. But if we're doing the right thing, and we have a full and a vibrant thing, we will gain a God-glorifying reputation. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 15, Let your light so shine before men. This was one of our memory verses a while back. You remember it, boys? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven that they may see the things that you've done and glorify God because of it. Are people glorifying God because of what we're doing? It's a good question to ask ourselves. He says in verse 10, And to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised up. So how they turned to God from idols, to serve the true and the living God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised up from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered. Notice past tense. is not delivering, but He delivered us from the wrath to come. Paul writes to the church. He speaks immediately of, their co- of the covenant of grace. He prays, he asks a blessing over the church. He gives thanks because of their faith. He's not a man that is serving the church with grief, but he's thankful for them. He prays for them because they have a work of faith, a labor of love, and then patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are active. And because of this, he knows that they are the elect, a doctrine that he has fully preached to them. Because their gospel came not in word only, but it had an effect 
of power and in the Holy Ghost. And it brought to their minds and hearts full assurance that they were the elect of God. And they came disciples and they turned from their idols. And all of this led to their faith being spoken of throughout the world. This is what true discipleship looks like. And this is why God has given the ministry. God has given the ministry to foster true discipleship, to help us all become followers of Christ, to become mature followers of Christ, to grow us in grace and the knowledge of Him. I trust these words have been a benefit. May the Lord bless you, keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and give you peace.